to Let's Make the Future, a discussion about future trends, technologies, and their implications for human society. We are coming to you from all over the world. Brought to you by Fling.Asia, urban drone delivery. Get it fast. Fling it. Fling! This episode's future trend discussion topic, video games with Sina Parsnajad. Welcome to Let's Make the Future. In this episode, we are going to talk with our special guest, Sina Parsnesha, the future, present, and a little bit of the past of video games and see what the future is holding for this ever-growing industry. Sina Parsnajad is an electrical engineer from Michigan State University, and he is a serious gamer. I've known him since 2012. And we're close friends, and I'm glad that best uh, friends. Yes, best friends. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. And uh, I, leave, I leave it to <laughs> I leave it to Sina to get a more personalized introduction of himself, and then we get to our regular panelists to introduce themselves. Thank you. Sorry, is this is, is this John Cena or no different? No, I just, like, but that's a very good name for, for for a good way to like make people remember my name. So yeah, it's it's kind of similar. I don't know. It's like spelled differently though. My name is like S I N A, but I guess the kind of, they come from the same source. I'm gonna picture you looking like John Cena throughout this conversation. <laughs> go, go ahead. That is very accurate. You know, depiction of. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm so buff, I can't raise my hands, lift my hands, you know. <laughs> now nah, I'm just <laughs> So, my name is Sina. I'm doing my PhD in electrical engineering. I'm trying to work on brain-machine interfaces, which is like an area that I'm actually very passionate about. But that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for my hobby, which is video games. I have been playing video games as long as I can remember. Yeah, wow, that's a long time. But I've been especially drawn to online and competitive video games since, let's say, 2010-ish. So it's been eight years now. And that's what I do, work by the day, play by the night. Yeah, and I'm very happy to join your very intriguing conversation. Sina, what school do you go to? MSU, Michigan State University. Kind of like in the sister lab of where like Hossein is working on. So, you know, we're like in sister labs. Got yeah. it. You're like sisters. Got it. Got it. I hear you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. So, uh, uh, ha, sorry, go ahead. I'm interrupting. No, no, no. So I segmented the discussions that we are going to have today into five areas that I thought would interest people. The general state of industry, the video games and their effect on humans, especially human brain. And social aspects of video games, because the stigma that like the lonely video gamer in his like basement is gone. Video games are a very social activity nowadays. And also the state of female video game players and breaking down gender barriers. I'm not the best person to talk about this because I'm not a female video game player. But I have like a link that would help people if you read that. So 
also esports and the future of sport video games, sportish video games, and also video games and art because there's a huge debate about like are video games art or not. So yeah. Thank awesome. you, Sino. So before we start, I would like you to get introduced to our fantastic regular panelists. I'm Daniel Valenzuela, currently based in Munich in Germany, and I am working here on the future of factory work. I'm Michael Curry, so I'm in Bangkok, and I'm trying to get drones flying around in the city here. That's my business, and we'll see if it works. My name is Michael. I'm working in fintech for emerging markets. I'm based in California in Palo Alto. My name is Sarah Thalen. I'm a freelance sign language interpreter working in Michigan. And I probably tease Sino so much as a defense mechanism because with the exception of Diddy Kong Racing, you'd probably beat me at any video game. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Right, Sarah. People have hidden talents, you know. <laughs> you don't know until you try. <laughs> <laughs> And my name is Hossein Kuhani, another electrical engineering PhD student at MSU. And I know Sina from Istanbul, Turkey, where we started doing masters together. And we were in the same laboratory in Turkey and Boğaziçi University. And we came here. There's a very funny story. I want everybody to know that. I get the <laughs> privilege to be the host and explain things more thoroughly. <laughs> so I'm going to take any advantage I can today of that. So when we were in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, I, I applied to Michigan State University and I was like, yeah, why don't you go ahead and share the package? I'm using FedEx. It's $60 and it's so expensive. Why don't you apply to this school so that we split the expense? And he said, well, I've applied to 10 universities. Uh, I don't know. All right. He yeah. did it. And then including Berkeley. <laughs> it's like, a, okay, go on. <laughs> And that was a stupid you never movie. know until you try. <laughs> yeah. So with all the respect to Spartans, MSU wasn't on top of his list. That's true. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then he got accepted to MSU along with University of Waterloo in Canada. So two out of 10 of 11 of his applications. And then he came to MSU and I didn't. I got rejected. And next year, when I was traveling in the US, you know, I was like, why don't you come here visit me? I was in Chicago at the time. And I was like, all right. And he said, you know what? My advisor is looking for a student. Do you want to meet with him? I met with him and then we liked each other and I got accepted a year after and then we became lab mates. So yeah. pretty inspiring story for most. And I always want to share that when there's an encounter with Sina and I. I can't believe, Sina, you, you didn't accept Waterloo. You rejected Waterloo in favor of MSU. Waterloo's the MIT of the North and my alma mater. I can't believe this. This is uh, oh, damn. terrible. Oh, yeah. I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> is that true? I actually don't know. Like, Is that, is that legit? Or are you oh, it is. <laughs> it is. You should feel terrible pangs of regret. Right Another now. step. Oh, yeah. Oh. My life has been a lie. <laughs> now, I have a good advisor at MSU. He looks after us. So, you know, that was one of the biggest reasons why I came here. Fair enough. Can't beat that. Yeah. So, Haas, let's get to the... Yeah, go ahead, Haas. So, Sina, please go ahead and let us know how did you get started in video games more thoroughly. You said 2010. What happened and how did you get into it? Well, um, I usually wasn't the strongest kid on the block. So, you know, it's kind of a, my life story. So I wasn't good at physical activities like my peers were. 
So I didn't usually go out that much. I prefer to stay home. And video games were a very good way for me to explore, you know, immerse myself. And that's one of the, the greatest features of video games. It's the immersion and it's the gratification of fantasies. You know, like everybody has like a power fantasy. You know, everybody's like, what if I was like strong and I could do like this thing and that thing? Well, you know, video game is a good way. You know, this is like from a personal point of view. It could be debated, obviously, especially with like more influential people. But for me, at least, the greatest aspect of video games is that they grant you your fantasies. You wish for power, then, you know, you are granted with power and you get to deal with the consequences, which is like very awesome. I fell off the radar a little bit until 2010. My console was like very old. My parents refused to buy me a new console because I have a little bit of an addictive personality. You know, it wouldn't be surprising if you find me like playing video games straight for eight hours. So they were really opposed to that. (laughs) Yeah, kind of makes sense. Until 2010, when I started like being more independent and like getting my own systems and, you know, like started playing again. At first, I only played offline video games. I didn't really bother with any other thing. But then I started playing, like accidentally playing Team Fortress 2, which is an online video game. And it's very competitive, fairly competitive. And it kind of granted me something I never had, which was the sporty mentality. I realized that I'm a very competitive person. But because I was never good at sports, because, you know, I couldn't run as fast and like do the things other people can do, the video game kind of granted me that the, the rush of adrenaline competing against other people in a fair environment and that I would say hooked me up with online competitive video games a lot more and I've never stopped ever playing and honestly I have learned a lot of good life lessons from online competitive video games because there's something about competing and like being mm-hmm. victorious against other people that everybody I think should experience in their lives the strategizing, the ability to control a situation off the cuff, the ability to have like a general overview of what's happening, the events that are happening around you. These are very key attributes that you have to have in order to be good at special business and, you know, education and a lot of stuff. And I'm very grateful to video games because they granted me that power. I would like to go over our panelists and ask when was the last time they played a video game and what was that game? And starting from Daniel. All right. So actually, we have one of these Wii towers that are actually not for the consumer market, but for, you know, like stores. So I don't know how illegal it is, but we have one of these here. And that's where I played Mario Kart, I think, two times. And that was also the only two times I think I played a video game in the last year, probably. And the other game I played next to this was Counter-Strike 1.6. And that was like totally my thing. And I also sometimes played with my cousins who play all kinds of newer versions and variants of it. But I always only play the old version. Dude, Counter-Strike 1.6 was the best stuff, man. I completely agree. Yeah, sometimes... Usually during Christmas, you know, when I visit my family, my cousins are there, then we suddenly start playing Counter-Strike 1.6 and we do it like three nights in a row until like 5 a.m. And then basically the family party is over. (laughs) Thank you, Daniel. Great input. Counter-Strike and Mario Kart. Michael Carey, why don't you go ahead and enlighten us with your past experience and the most recent? The last game I played was Slither.io, which is very addictive and I'm an addict. That was two weeks ago. I've managed to 
block it for most of my computers, but I found a way to unblock it two weeks ago and I played it for an hour. It's a, like this, a little bit about yeah, it. sorry. Yeah, I should say it's like a JavaScript game that was apparently hacked together by this guy, kind of based on like agar.io, which is like a massive multiplayer two dimensional game where you're just like some snakes slithering around the screen and if you run into another snake then you die so the goal is to get other snakes to run into you and it's very 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 addictive it's got a lot of shiny things in the game like nice colors and stuff and it just it's very very fast paced and exciting it has just the right mix of like exciting and flashy colors to just totally tweak my what is it addiction impulse or that sense of gratification instant gratification and so I want to just play it again right you you die and then you're like oh and then you play immediately restart the game and play again and play again and play again and then before you know it it's four in the morning and you're in big trouble thank you i slept at 4 a.m last night so <laughs> if you understand yeah but that was preparation for this podcast so you could totally justify it for uh, at least last night so <laughs> no problem that's true that's true <laughs> Thanks. That gets us to a very uh, important aspect of video game, which is addiction, which is one of the aspects that has one of the highest consensus among scientists as one of the side effects, I would say, of video games. So uh, how about did, Michael? Or did we finish? Okay. My first video game was Donkey Kong for Super Nintendo, which I'm much more sentimental about than my last game of Mario Kart, which was maybe a month or two ago. Yeah, that was my last video game experience. But they both feature the same character. That's cool. Yeah. I do always pick Donkey Kong, so there's a link there. <laughs> Actually, if I remember, my first video game was Pokemon on the Game Boy. That was extremely cool. Loved Pokemon. Oh, yeah. Pokemon oh. is a great game. It's still lasting after years of years. Still, uh, and the two of the games today, the sun and the moon, are the most... It's in the list of the top 20 oh. selling games in the world. Is Pokemon a video game? I thought it was like a set of plush toys. Did I miss that? It's a friend. So it started with like the Pokemon cartoons. They were marketed to little kids that it had a good story, but it was foisted so people sell kids and toys. Cards. Don't forget yeah. the playing cards. Then it became playing cards, it became like movies, then video games, and a lot of toys and more toys. And then now they're like a whole franchise everywhere. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So to my experience, I started video games when I was in elementary school with our first computer, Pentium 2. I started with FIFA. Uh -huh. and then FIFA 96, that was my first to go to. And then I got a lot of inspiration from the games Age of Empires, Commandos, strategy games. And then it came to first-person shooter with strong stories like Max Payne. Which, oh, uh, I love that game. Yes, a lot of inspiration, a lot of good days. And then it came down to high school, which we used to go out with my friends. That was a very refreshing experience because in the past, I only played offline with sharing my status of playing the game with one or two friends but then in high school we started the multiplayer games we would go to game nets which was like a internet coffee shops and many of us we would organize these events and go and 10 by 10 play for months and years and grow rankings and so on and that was yeah, a land plates right exactly playing on land and that was very influential in a lot of friendships that we developed in our high school years and i really appreciate that side of the video games hey Haas, what's the position of the ayatollah on 
video games. Is it like like dancing? They don't like it or, or it didn't matter? That's a great question. They never, I don't think they ever bothered with it because it wasn't like a threat to them. I don't know. Well, it's, they just Go, didn't they? Because they said it was like a hazard, but I guess that's not cultural. Yeah, but they hate fun, so, you know, <laughs> that's a whole different story. They just hate everything that's fun. So I guess video games is one of, but unfortunately, because the Iranian markets are closed to international payment, you can't literally buy a video game in Iran. That's one of the biggest issues. Like you can't buy a video game, you can pay for them. So all of the games almost come through illegal means, through local sellers. You know, they sell already cracked versions of video games for like very cheap. And you can't stop people buying like a wheat CD from like a random shop. So unfortunately, there are a lot of gamers in Iran, but they don't really pay for their video games, which is a bummer. If I was a dictator, I would distribute video games to all my citizens because people that have video games would be distracted and addicted and much less inclined to organize and try to form a revolution and kick me out of power. Well, the you opiate. Know, you could do that with opium, which is like way better. The opiate of the masses is, yeah, either actual opium or it could be, you know, just a video game. And then as you were pointing out, it's life lessons. Maybe you're learning something. So your citizens are sort of vaguely productive. They're like rehearsing the skills that you would need to be productive at the office. Anyway, I'm derailing the conversation. Haas. Yes, Tina raised a good point. Iran's market is disconnected from the world in the sense that we don't actually have the same distribution network as it's usually known in the world. So everything comes with a cracking system. So that means like relating to the authoritarian regime, I would say that's a good point, Michael, you raised that they're not inherently against video games. And here and there, they try to ban certain games. But because of the nature of its distribution that is already on the ground internationally, there is no way to control it either. So they don't have means of control of its distribution, which is being downloaded from torrent-like websites and always yep. being cracked. And on yeah. the downside of it is that also, yeah. Iranian players don't involve and engage in online gaming, which is usually a feature of the games that once you crack it, yeah. you can access online gaming, which is the downside of it. Yes, that's absolutely true. And also, they have like a very archaic view of video games. They feel like, oh, it's like something that 13-year-olds play, which we shouldn't really concern ourselves with. Which brings me to my first point, which surprisingly, a lot of people are wrong about the demographics that play video games. According to the ESA report that I shared with you guys, the average female video game player age is 37, and the average male male video game player age is 33, which is very important numbers because this is like a generational thing. The 33 years old are the people who first embraced video games and the first wave of video games in the 90s. The games like Donkey Kong, the games like Mario games, Nintendo games, then like first generation of PlayStation. And most of them kept on playing until now. So they're like around our age, 33, 37. It's funny because the average female video game player is 37, and that's because a huge demographic of video game players are 50 plus years old in female game players, which is a very interesting statistic. But what games are they playing? Like, are they playing like Farmville on their phones, or are they playing like shoot 'em? Like, yeah, yes. Yes, that's the thing. Video games, also like mobile games, games that you have on your phone are considered video games. So that's one of the things I said, you know, take these with a grain of salt. 
They also consider like mobile games as video games, which is legit is. So you have to adjust your view of video games for these statistics to make sense. But yes, yes, a lot of older ladies are playing mobile video games, which are legit considered video games. Even though they're not as engaging as, let's say, Overwatch or Counter-Strike, there's still a very good majority that does that. What does engaging for you mean? I mean, maybe it's just engaging on a different scale, on a different measure, right? Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Instead of shooting a terrorist, you're just, you know, planting a tree, so... Seems like. Yep, that's true. So, yes, that's a very interesting statistic that still gets me. But, of course, you know, it says 41% of U.S. video game players are women, which is, these whole statistics is very important to me because it shows a contrast between the perception of video games that people have, which is like, yeah, it's like some... 13-year-old kid in his mom's basement playing video games. But the average play game is, is like, you know, around 30s and almost 50% of them are women. So but demographics are changing and we should probably change our views of who actually plays video games. Yes, I also noticed that a quarter of the gamers are 50 plus years yeah, old, yeah. which is quite fascinating. Yes, so, yes, uh, yes. What's your perspective towards the future of the technology of video games? Remember, video games started before the internet got popular. So, and the internet had a lot of influence on online gaming and multiplayer gaming. And then here we have the virtual reality, which expands upon the modalities that you experience the games. What are your thoughts on the future and how the video games are going to look like in 50 years from now? Very good question. So this is coming from the electrical engineer more than the video game player. But the technologies that we have for CPUs, which is like your computer central processing system, it's not saturated. There's still a lot to go on, but, you know, we are reaching some hard limits. But on the other hand, graphic cards are, especially because of the miners, you know, Bitcoin miners, and the booming video game industry, and the fact that technologically there is a lot more to be done in the field of graphic cards. Graphic cards are a booming industry right now, and their performance is predicted to even be like the rate that they advance, you know, in their process per minute, and, you know, their performance is predicted to, I'm not sure about the numbers, but it's definitely more than the Moore law. So it's really advancing fast. And because of that, there is the chance for video games to have way higher quality, 4K qualities with very natural effects. And if you like look at the latest games that are coming out, for example, the new Far Cry, it just looks fascinating. The jungles, like you could see the individual leaves just like going on the trees. It's just fascinating. And it's not going to stop. It's upward trend and it's going to advance very fast. And on the other side, there is the emerging market of VR, as you mentioned. And VR is definitely in its infancy. There are a lot of good utilities that you could use for VR. For example, the new HTC Vive or Oculus Lift. They are very good tools. So the programmers have almost proper tools because VR takes a lot of graphic GPU processing power. So we almost have very good graphics cards. So it's up to the new wave of programmers and engineers to integrate these two to make fascinating experiences. And VR, unlike the other like classical video games, is a kind of activity that is engaging to everybody from 60 plus year old elderly to five-year-old kids 
everybody has something they could find very engaging in VR. And definitely that's going to be one of the biggest avenues of video game industry moving forward. But it's still in infancy. There is a lot to be done. And I don't know if you guys have played VR games or not. They're pretty good, but they have a lot of room for improvement. Who's used VR in this room right now? Sarah and I actually happened to enjoy an experience between our friends in Chicago. There is this business that they have a location. They have seven rooms prepared with Oculus Lift. It's all black, small rooms. You reserve 15 minutes and you go in and you can go up maximum four people and one by one you switch you can see your friend playing while wearing the vr headset which actually can be as much fun to see your friend playing a vr headset because there's a large screen on the side you can see what they're experiencing and you can see their movements and their confusion at times and interestingly it happened two times for sarah and i both that it got somewhere that got so scary when an animal attacked me or when there was a zombie that attacked her we both actually happened to disengage and detach the headset because it was so overwhelming we couldn't keep playing that was pretty impressive like that experience yeah especially vr is a very interesting subject because it's not just video games it's Okay, this is more about VR now and uh, more about video games. But VR has way more to offer than video games can. And that's kind of distinguishes it from video games. Because, for example, one of my favorite content creators is Justin Roiland, one of the co-creators of Rick and Morty. He sometimes has these podcasts slash stand-up comedy sessions that are in VR. So he's on a scene in VR. And if you want to join his program, you log in with your own VR headset, go to his virtual venue, which is like a virtual stand-up comedy venue. You sit down at the tables and watch him perform with other people across the world. And this is just fascinating to me. But this is, as I said, this is more about VR. And unfortunately, only like 15 to 19% of current VR users use it to socialize with others virtually. But it's yeah. definitely a trend that's happening. And it's just fascinating to me. I wanted to just make a comment because I was asking, so has anyone else tried VR? And I happened to own an Oculus Rift. I was very excited to get one, not because I wanted to play video games, but because I wanted to replace my monitor. I wanted to get like a huge virtual screen and do all my work from that screen. So I bought an Oculus. It turns out the resolution just isn't high enough for that. Like maybe the next generation will be, but when you look at the screen, it exhibits this screen door effect and the pixels are really hard to make out. But I did, of course, get a chance to play some games. And it turns out basically that I used the Oculus for a while and then kind of put it away. And I haven't used it in like over a year. And instead, I prefer to like play chess on my phone or slither on my on my browser. I feel like the, um, what is a game? So when one of the links you gave us, you know, Jane McGonigal, she wrote, a game is an opportunity to focus our energy with relentless optimism at something we're good at or getting better at and enjoy. In other words, gameplay is the direct emotional opposite of depression. And my point here is that those properties can be enjoyed in extremely low fidelity. Like the fact that we have VR and graphics cards like you're talking about going past Moore's Law doesn't diminish the simple pleasure of playing Donkey Kong or Mario Bros 
Brothers or even Tetris. Like it just, I think what we need as humans to enjoy a game is not fancy graphics, but like just the simple, I call it addiction, it sounds bad, but just, you know, the simple like feedback response you get from games that distinguishes it from a passive entertainment like movies. And I think it's what makes games just so awesome is they really wire into the brain. The fact that you said that it's actually very true. Like if you look at the ESA on page six, 65% of US households are at least they have one person who plays three or more hours of video games per week. Well, 90% of these households have personal computers, but 81% of them and uh, 60 uh, use smartphones. So smartphones are very low fidelity, as you said, but they are one of the most common devices of video gaming in the industry right now. And they have one of the highest revenues, actually. Revenue per device or revenue market? Revenue market, yes. Yeah, okay. I, I don't find that a statistic, but almost, uh, I don't want to say just a random number. Can't find it, but it was a high <laughs> percentage of, of video game revenues, like very considerably high percentage of video game revenues are from mobile markets and not from like AAA, you know, like Call of Duty titles, which is like very interesting to me. That's a great point. You raised low fidelity can be uh, very desirable by the users. So how I understand it is the convenience is very important because using an Oculus can be exhausting at times. After 15 minutes, the headset is heavy and it's a lot of strain on your eyes and our bodies are not simply evolved enough yet to address all that complexity while enjoying a video game. What are your thoughts about the improvements that VR technology can have in the future to make it more mainstream? You know? Well, one of the greatest things is the physical part of the technology, which is you can't use VR headset consistently. Most people feel like a dizziness effect after a while of using VR headsets because, you know, it's still like a virtual environment, but you're physically in a physical environment and it kind of throws off your brain. It would cause nausea. It would cause, you know, a bunch of effects. I've heard that the new devices are way more like you could use them for six hours straight without having those effects. So that's a plus. But the other issue that we have is because VR, like good VR, like professional VR takes a lot of processing power. But unfortunately, because of Bitcoin miners, the prices of graphic cards have increased almost 200% within the last years. The same quality of video card, but the price is doubled now because miners keep mining and it's kind of throwing off the market of graphics card. And it's very expensive to own like a VR-ready computer and headset. But that being said, a lot of other people are coming into VR market, like PlayStation is releasing their own VR headset. You could have like a low-fidelity VR headset with your smartphone. So even though that venue is a little bit blocked, but there are other venues that are expanding and they're trying to bring VR to the everyday user. Very low quality, low fidelity VRs are on the rise right now. Hopefully a bit of heavy investment from Facebook that acquired Oculus is going to change the atmosphere in the following years. I'm very optimistic about the role VR is going to take in future. So I think it's very important to go and talk about eSports with the yes. huge being developed behind it. Is it okay if I ask one more question about kind of the last topic about like technologies and realities? Yes, please, Daniel. 
Sina, you introduced the story, or particularly your story, with video games, saying that you didn't feel like you were the fittest among your peers in terms of like physical exercise or competitiveness in that sense. And I wonder how that plays into the development of basically the merging of reality and games. For example, what I think would be cool, you know, if you like look at augmented reality or mixed reality, virtual reality, that you can kind of completely get into like completely new ideas of gaming that will include like heavy physical exercise, maybe, for example. Is that something that you think is inherently excluded from like a large part of the gamers market and that will be like different segments of the market? Or do you think that's actually something that could become mainstream or how do these distinguish? Again, the video game market is very, very diverse. So even now, currently, there are a lot of video games that rely on physical activity, especially most of the Nintendo and I mean, Nintendo games or like Dance Dance Revolution games. But yes, there is definitely an aspect of physical activity that is missing from current video games. And going into future, I don't think this is going to change. There are going to always be games that you know don't rely on your physical abilities. But that doesn't mean that the market on the games that require physical ability is not going to grow. It's actually the reverse. Because it's expanding market. It already have established, you know, the market within which, you know, kids don't usually do a lot of activity. They just stay home and play. But if you want to expand the market, you have to reach new audience, which will be more physical people. And I'm pretty sure in future, there are going to be games emerging that have that aspect of it. There are already a lot of cool VR gadgets that let you run on a stationary treadmill, you know, crouch, do a lot of physical activities. And this is definitely going to be one of the areas that the market can expand. And it's going to expand because, you know, it's a booming industry right now. I don't know if you saw, if there's other Black Mirror fans out there, if you saw the episode called Playtest, where there's a guy uh, who is involved in the testing of a new VR module that sort of reads. And since you're involved in brain-computer interface, in this episode, the man puts on this headset and it's reading his neural responses and sort of trying to figure out what scares him the most so that he'll get the best thrill out of this video game. Okay. And I bring this up not only because it's an amazing episode, but because I think about the recent blow up with Facebook and all this data being released. I'm wondering about the ethical boundaries of VR data collection when we're trying to enhance VR and make it more catered mm -hmm. to the individual. And then also how VR might be an excellent data collection tool in general. Do you see that being something that could be a boon to other departments in science? Or what are your thoughts on that? This is more from the scientist side of me than like a video gamer side of me. But definitely, okay, VR is collecting sound, it's collecting spatial data, it's collecting visual data to process where you're looking at, a lot of stuff is reliant on your spatial data. So I guess that could be used in somehow. And I'm not really qualified to answer this question because I don't know what are the privacy agreements that you sign when you're playing a video game. If the privacy settings are that, yeah, we could use your data, then yeah, they'll definitely use that data. But if mm -hmm. there is like a privacy like agreement that, yeah, we are not going to use your data in like our database, we're not going to store it, we're not going to sell it, then it should be fine. I would assume, without also having read them, without even playing a lot of video games, but I would assume that they want to use all data that they can to improve the experience for the user. And I guess that would also include a lot of personal data because 
I don't know, like one cool thing in the future would be that you get your video games more personalized and then if you have VR and you have more sensors on yourself and then they realize that certain things trigger certain movements in your body that you might not even be aware of, I think that would be an interesting field for data acquisition. This comes to the law aspect of it. So it's fantastic that they're using your personal data to improve your experience. It becomes troublesome when they give your data away to like Cambridge Analytica or like any other company without your consent or without you knowing what's actually happening to your data. If they are a transparent company that are like, okay, we are not going to sell your data. If we do, you could sue us. You should be fine. I think data privacy can be a complete episode we can talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely it. I would like to have Sina go over esports and his experience as an Overwatch player. And please also make sure you mention about your own personal ranking and how the ranking works in the world. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, okay, let's talk about esports. Esports is another booming industry that's happening right now and it's in its infancy but okay it's like this it's a market that people think has the potential to go very big and because of that people are flowing a lot of funds into this industry for example a lot of top esports teams are being bought by big name sporting companies that are branding the esports teams as their own. So there is a lot of potential in this market and it's definitely going to catch on because it has a lot of space to grow even within the video gaming demographic. But the real question is, once we have reached the people that we can reach in the video game demographic, where to go from that? Can we convince casual, non-video game people to invest or to at least get interested in video games? And that, well, depends on the marketing. It depends on a lot of factors. It depends on how video games are understandable to the casual viewers. But the fact is that this industry has a lot of space to grow even within the casual non-video game people. For example, NBA has recently announced that it's taking like a major partnership with Take-Two Interactive, which is the people who make NBA video games. And they are going to have like a parallel video game NBA league with the normal NBA, which is pretty awesome. And, you know, so there is still a lot going on that because it's like a sporting game, people can understand it way easier. And within the video game industry, there is a lot of growth. For example, there are a lot of leagues that are emerging. The latest one is Overwatch League with huge millions of dollars of prize pools. For example, in case of Overwatch League, the first inauguration week of Overwatch League, which is like a global league of video games or global league for Overwatch, I think 12 teams, I don't remember the exact number from like different cities across the world. It had 10 million views, which is already higher than the baseball league. So there is a lot of space to grow. And that's my basically like slapstick. Uh, yeah. Michael, I was one of the first esports participants, I'm going to say, because when I was six years old, my neighbor, who's also six years old, I would go to his basement and watch him play Super Mario Brothers. And I would generally not play. I would just watch. And that was mostly because he wouldn't let me play. But nevertheless, I ended up watching and I actually... I actually enjoyed it. Like, I actually didn't mind. And I think there's, for the very same reason that millions of people watch hundreds of hours a year of 
baseball, football, any number of organized sports, because it's kind of fun. You know, there's a tension in the game. Is someone going to score? Are they not going to score? Even though essentially every minute of that game is the same as every other minute in terms of what the content looks like, the satisfyingness of it is not its novelty, but it's the tension that's generated by the unpredictable outcome and the fact that you're sort of on tenterhooks just waiting to see what's going to happen. And that, again, kind of triggers that thing in your brain that makes you interested in watching it. And video games can be just like that, in fact, even better, because they can create far more interesting situations and complicated scenarios that you don't get in like baseball or hockey, where it's sure it's human beings. So there's some interesting complications you get from that. But video games can get way more fantastical and way more interesting. As seen, as you say, that they can be somewhat understandable to the casual uh, viewer. It's perfectly reasonable to suspect that in the future, they will, if not replace professional sports, they will at least become as popular or more popular than professional sports. And that's a pretty wild prediction even today, right? Because professional sports are like one of the biggest industries in entertainment in the world. But I can totally see that being replaced by video games. That's my opinion. That is true. And there is like an emerging, not emerging, let's say, but have you guys heard about Twitch? Sure. Yeah. Twitch. Yeah. Yeah. So Twitch is a streaming service that, you know, you play a video game, you stream your, sometimes your face, but the video game, I mean, the video game, but sometimes with your face and people come and watch if they wish they could give you a tip of, you know, whatever dollars they could subscribe and like pay you a monthly, you know, fee to keep you going because you're a content creator. So it's basically what you said. And to give you an idea of how big this website is, in 2014, only three years after it was founded, Twitch was bought by Amazon for $970 million. So that's almost a billion dollars, which means it's a huge business. And not only that, now Twitch has become the foundation for a lot of esports. So a lot of esports leagues present their league on Twitch and people can interact with the league. For example, one of the business models of Overwatch League is that you go and watch it on Twitch or some other services. You cheer for your team. You can donate to your team by buying stickers that have your team's name on it and like using it in the Twitch chat, which is like a feature of Twitch that, you know, you could see people chatting about the game happening right now. And each oh. game of Overwatch League recently, every game that starts at like 5 p.m. ends at like 12 p.m. It has an average viewing of 120,000 people live just on Twitch, which is just one platform. They have other platforms that they also like present their stuff on. And they have a lot of sponsors ranging from Intel to Sour Patch Kids to, you know, a lot of stuff. But that's also another issue that, you know, professional esports events have, which is their sponsorship. Their sponsorship is unfortunately limited to either, you know, stuff like Sour Patch or like, you know, Mountain Dew, you know, which the gamers drink or eat when they're playing. Or it's like computer accessories like Razer, Intel. They haven't expanded into, I don't know, like Toyota. I guess not. Toyota is also a contributor to Overwatch. But you know what I mean. Like their sponsorship is limited to some specific areas. And if they want to expand, they need to be able to tap into other sponsorship areas. But yeah, for example, I don't know, like Bank of America or something. But then again, it's not really feasible. So this is like an issue that, you know, the market has to solve because why would Bank of America even sponsor an esports league? So that's like some issues that need to be solved. But yeah, 
that's the whole spiel. Right, so you had a question. Yes, I wanted to compare sports with esports. And in most games that are played in stadiums, I think the feedback that teams get from their supporters and the audience is very, very important in the way they perform and the atmosphere that they get from their supporters. But I haven't observed such a mechanism to get a feedback from the supporters. Have you experienced or have you noticed any technological platform that creates a similar phenomena for people who sit behind a computer? I've seen there is a room and there is like a small group of people that sit behind the computers, like actual physical people, and they somehow try to simulate the same phenomena. But I imagine like the players are so caught up with their screens and their headphones talking to each other that they don't actually interact with the audience as much. How is that mechanism yes, yes. going to be uh, simulated? I see. So you want to say like during sports, like the players do interact with their audience, but I don't understand. Could you like explain your question again? Yes, for example, the hooray that the supporters in a larger stadium, if there's a soccer game, if they're getting a lot of applause and support from their supporters, that they're just sitting there and watching and making noise. Is there such a mechanism in the video game players? Like yes, yes, yes. Mostly video games, especially like esports video. I mean, esports video games are usually like the big ones, at least, are played in stadiums or are played on with live spectators. And trust me, those live spectators are loud. If you want a good example, I'm a big Overwatch League fan, so most of my examples come from that. If you watch any session of Overwatch League, there is like a lot of people present at the venue that the players are playing. So the players are playing facing the crowd, and they can see the crowd, and the crowd always goes wild. They have a lot of signs, they cosplay, they go there, they cheer, they're loud, and whenever like some big play happens, they scream their heads off. So yes, there's still that aspect to it as well. Also, there is another the virtual element of it, which is on Twitch or like on similar websites when people are viewing the sports, you know, the esport, they could have like a live chat or live Reddit discussion threads or live Twitter discussion threads. Those threads also go wild. Especially Twitch chat is just like constantly like spamming people cheering for their team in a chat, which is like very interesting. And mm -hmm. if the team like performs bad, the fans get mad, you know, you see more like angry, like emotes when they do like something amazing, everybody goes wild. But unfortunately, there is the downside because it's like internet and anonymity. Like a lot of people are also terrible people. So we also have a lot of, you know, right. issues with that. That's actually one of the biggest can I, issues. Can I ask one question? Um, sure, sure. Because I have very, very little understanding about the whole esports scene. How is it? In terms of, you know, like there's two types of video games, I would say. The, the one is where you basically play by yourself against like some intelligence or something, you know. And the other probably more recent one through the internet is that players play against each other and both have their own kind of addicting factors. And I feel like the same thing also happens in real world. For example, if you have two soccer teams playing against each other, you, you know, like there's so many things that could happen from both sides, from each human on the field, basically. But there's also maybe other games where, for example, like Olympic games where you just like theoretically play against each other 
other, but in the moment you just play against gravity, for example, if you do jumping or something. How do these compare on esports? Is it only one type, like the community type playing that is being used a lot? And also in the future, do you think, because I mean, we'll see more and more intelligent machines, so it might be interesting to go back to the former one. How is it right now and how will it be? What do you think? Very, very good point. I actually want to like point this out too. The people who are playing esports, that's their job. That's their business. And they throw in a lot. For example, teams that are playing in Overwatch League, for example, my favorite team, Houston Outlaws, they train six days a week. Each day, sometime, something around six to eight hours a day of training. And besides that, they also do physical training because they want their responses to be as fast as possible. So they do a lot of bodybuilding exercises. They do a lot oh, of physical wow. things because they want, they need to be at their peak performance. Which also brings the whole issue that esports have with like drug abuse and stuff, but that's some other topic. Well, because of that, you know, people and because the video game itself, the character that you're playing doesn't have physical limits. You have like a set speed. You can't go faster than that speed. You can't go slower than that speed. So because of that, it creates this dynamic that your character is always performing, performing at a constant level. So it's not like, you know, if you press harder, you'll like run faster as in like in a normal Olympic sport. For example, you're like doing like a 10, 100 meter run. You know, if you like run faster, you'll win. It's not like that. It's the, all the characters have same amount of skill. So if it's against an AI, these kids, the players, they always find the mathematically best solution to beat AI. So player versus AI is not as engaging. The most engaging one is human versus human. So it's all about the mental games, the communication between teammates, the response time. The response time is, I would say, the most human level. And the response times needs to be in like within milliseconds. So if you see someone, if they see you, whoever has the fastest reaction usually wins. So that's the only human factor involved in like physical human factor. But the rest, it's all pure mathematics. So who has the higher hand? Who has the better ability usage economy? Who has the best positioning? Who has the best communication, target focusing? And there's a lot of other elements that are involved, but usually the physical elements, the something that only is limited limited by human physical ability is only usually reaction times and staying calm so the psychological sides of it can you tell us also about the games that are being done the world cups the clubs and the ranking system i find it very fascinating how it works and how the other online players can get a chance to ever play with the professional gamers sure sure yes usually video games for example like games like call of duty it's not tailored to be esports ready there's this term called esports ready which means if a game is esports ready it means that the game is fair and balanced in terms of the hero abilities in terms of the maps in terms of the game design so if two teams are competing against each other the chances of it's not like it doesn't have like a defender or like an offender bias both of the teams have the same chances of winning the game well that's called esports being esports ready 
Uh, what was your question again? I kind of forgot. Sorry. About the clubs and the world. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, yes. Yeah. Not all of the games are esports ready, but the games that are esports ready, they usually have competitive modes, which you know you compete in. You have a rank. It's usually like at least in Overwatch, it's the lowest rank is bronze, then it's silver, then gold, then platinum, diamond, master, grandmaster, and top 500. So top 500 is the top 500 people in that region, which is usually the regions are usually like this. Americas, which is like North and South America, Europe, Asia and Pacific, and sometimes some other like areas are added, but it's usually like these areas. So <laughs> if you want to be able to attend or at least like get closer to the level of these kids that play esports, you need to at least be in the top 100 people in your region. And how you're selected to play in the tournament is that once you hit like a level like that, you get to form, especially in Overwatch League. I'm, I'm mostly talking about Overwatch League now. You get to either like the teams kind of scope you out and like ask you to like join them because you're a very good famous player in your region. Or you could form your own team, go to the minor league, and there's like minor leagues and there's the major league, which is like the Overwatch League. It's called the Contenders League. You compete in the Contenders League. If your team does well, then you have chances of either like rank going up, getting both like your whole team into like the major league or the major league teams scoping you out and like, you know, asking you to join them. But even with that, like the major league players also play ranked because they want to be connected with the community they also do this game for fun so when they do the game for fun they usually do it online in the rank system so there is chances of if you're like top 500 there are chances that you'll bump into one of the pro players but if you're not that high level you probably won't be able to like play against them because they will rake you even if you play against them I've seen so, some professional gamers can sometimes get paid six figures in the U.S. Yes, uh, yes, yes. So One of the latest editions is San Francisco Shock in Overwatch League. They bought this kid. There's also another thing. Gamers, they go with their personas. For example, you see, like, my name is Tina Parsonsot, but my persona is Knight Sidonia. That's my online persona. In most of the games, I go by that name. And in the league, all the players go by their personas. For example, this kid, Jay... His name is Sinatra in the Overwatch League. He got signed into San Francisco Shock when he was 17, but he should have been 18 to be able to play, so he couldn't even play for half of the league. They signed him in for 150k a year, which is a massive number, but that's not it. You could even go higher than that. There is no salary cap in this league, so you could go even higher. But that's the starting salary for Sinatra, which is like... Do you suggest video gaming as a source of income for the youth to see in the future? Okay, it's hard... It's not easy. You have to like dedicate yourself to the game. As I said, these kids, they train six to eight hours a day, six days a week. So it's not easy. And even if you put that much time into it, there is this whole concept that some people are just not fast enough. They are not built for online competitive video games. Even if you like put the amount of effort that other people put, you may not be as good as them because, you know, you're not good in that area in like inherently like biological level. So if you're really passionate, go for it. But it's a little bit risky because it's like a gladiator combat. You know, not everybody survives a gladiator combat, even though the ones who survive get all the glory. So, you know, if you're really passionate, go for it. But if you're just looking at it as a source of revenue, that's not where you want to be.
The attractive thing about it is for sure that it will be something that will be around, or at least sounds like it, because it's not like a job that will be automated or something because it lives from the human factor. However, yeah, it's something that you, like with many competitive sports, that there's a long tail, you know, like you need to make it among the top performers to actually make a living out of it. And then additionally, as you said, it's like a gladiator fight probably. And like every two or three years, they change your equipment, I guess, you know, like not the same games around forever besides Counter-Strike 1.6. That's debatable, actually, because, yeah, 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 because... For example, games like Overwatch, League of Legends, Dota 2, the eSports Ready games, they stay the same because, you know, players have to adapt to the system. So you don't want to, like, keep changing the system. So yeah. it's like Dota 2 has been, like, minor changes. We haven't had Dota 3 in, like, what, 10 years now? Like, So, no, no, they are not changing. They're here to stay. Even cool. Counter-Strike, yeah, it's been the same game for, like, the last 20 years. Cool. So interesting, yeah. So partly recommendable job choice. Yeah. And also another thing, uh, the social aspect of video games. As I said, you know, the object that, you know, the lonely video game player is gone. A lot of people these days actually play video games for socializing. For example, I have a lot of friends here in America because, you know, it's a massive country. Like they're like spread all over the place. The only way that these days we could interact with one another is playing, for example, Rainbow Six Siege together. And that's how we are staying in touch because that's a group activity that we do together. And it's like every time we rekindle our friendship, you know, we stay in contact, we talk to each other. And this is not just a trend that's happening with me. A lot of video game players are like that. And not just that, because they also take ownership of their game. So they form communities, they meet offline, they do online activities together they usually like form clans and like do managements on that clan all these activities bring people out of social isolation so it's like a blessing to a lot of people like the person one of the creators of overwatch jeff kaplan he actually met his wife playing world of warcraft which is like another online video game and he's not the only one i know a lot of people who met each other in video games and like you know met offline they fell in love they married or you know they're like best friends or whatever So it's a new emerging social activity. It's a very interesting concept. So there is a huge, especially like with online video games, there is a huge aspect of it that people usually tend to ignore, which is like social interaction. Now that you say it, actually from when I was in high school, one of our teachers, one of our math teachers actually met his wife playing, I think, World of Warcraft so freaking long time ago. And it's such a sad, like the convention, you know, all the, like people get together, they do like cosplays, they go to conventions, they meet people at conventions, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's a very bustling society. Cool. Fascinating. Can I make a suggestion? We've talked a little bit about the future of video games, but I think a lot about the state of video games today. Can we ask this question to everybody in the room? What's something that people don't currently believe, but that you think the future will hold for video games? What I think will be the case that currently people don't necessarily believe is I think movies, as we know them right now, will cease to exist. I think movies are basically wish fulfillment right now, whether it's for an audience of teenage boys or whether it's teenage girls with the vampire movies. And I think instead we're going to get virtual reality or even better, some kind of interactive video game type, holodeck type entertainment that will supplant the idea of passively watching a two-dimensional movie. I would say one of the greatest thing to go move forward with video game industry that not a lot of people believe in is actually the social aspect. And it's going to expand. We are going to have communities that 
are just based around video games. And a lot of people are going to get out of isolation using video games, which is contrary to a lot of people's belief that, you know, video games are very isolating. It's actually turning out to be the exact opposite. I think that the line between video games and other types of media and other types of technology we use from day to day is going to blur. Like when we want to have technologies that make our house smarter or just ways to like take fun selfies that will start to develop into more of a everyday increasingly virtual experience so that video games might have to become increasingly interactive and psychologically advanced to keep up. Yeah, I was going to say a similar thing that we won't have any, like, how do you say, boring times anymore. We will just always, like when you're walking along the street, you will always wear your AR or mixed reality wear. So that basically when you walk the street, you always can like play some game while doing it or balance on the, like a string between two like houses or something when, you, when you're going home. And you can also socially meet other people because you will realize that they are playing the same game while they're waiting in line and then you will socialize with them. So will social, ever-present, omnipresent medium. That's true, that's true. Sarah and Daniel already covered some aspects. I wanted to share that the line between the video games, which is the virtual reality, versus the reality we know as physical is being fuzzier and fuzzier and blurred, as we know with the games like Pokemon Go, that can be completely in between. And then I want to add the integration of cryptocurrencies with video games Oh, yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> oh my god, that's actually one of the biggest issues in video game industry right now. But go on, go on, go on. Yeah, so I just have a thought recently. I want to share with you guys and know your feedback, and maybe if not now, later through our discussion. And that I think right now the market of cryptocurrencies is the prices, for example, can be defined by the battle between birds and bulls, sellers and buyers, which can be two teams. And think of that platform as a platform like a video game that there are two teams battling against each other. And with the emergence of esports, we can see that actual people can sit in two different rooms and play against each other. And we have all these large populations that they follow these teams, just like the soccer and football in the world that we have today. A huge amount of money goes to these teams because a lot of people actually pay attention identify themselves with those teams. So imagine in a future that each of these teams have their own cryptocurrency. If it's Houston Club, Houston versus, let's say, New York. New York has its coin called New York coin, and then Houston has Houston coin. And then the price of these coins can be defined by the amount of people who buy these coins. So if you're a fan of Houston Club, you're going to buy Let's say you have extra $100, you're going to exchange that into Houston Club coin, and then that means you're supporting that. And then if a lot more people support that team, the price, because more people are going to buy, and the price of that coin is going up. And that can also fund their finances versus the centralized funding that we have today. Imagine a day that if you follow a soccer team, a football team, and a baseball team, you have holdings on coins of each of these teams, which makes it the finance of the sports extremely decentralized as of we have today. So that's the future I see the merge between video games and cryptocurrencies as inevitable. Crypto betting. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something yeah to it's look forward to uh, for the games. I would say. 
Um, unfortunately, the video game, I mean, at least right now, the people playing video games are not the biggest fan of cryptocurrencies because crypto mining is like gouging the price of graphics cards and the microtransactions are one of the biggest issues facing the industry is the microtransactions are ruining the games. But yes, what you said about the esports and like cryptocurrencies, actually, they make a lot of sense. That's pretty funny. Interesting. Unfortunately, I didn't get to like talk about arts and video games, which wasn't really. Yeah, it was a pretty ambitious agenda. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, I guess we could have talked also more about the other points, but unfortunately, I need to run now to dinner. So, any closing thoughts, or do you want to continue the discussion? The future, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> 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 Haas, you got to close us out here. Thank you, Sina, for joining our podcast and sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Michael Curry, for staying up too late for us and uh, sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Daniel. And please go ahead and if you have closing captions, share with us. I just want to ask, Sina, if we want to hear more about you or your rankings on Overwatch or anything else, if you have a Twitter feed or anything, that's what we usually ask of our guests. Please let us know right now. All right, well, I'm currently in Diamond in Overwatch. I don't get to play the game a lot because I'm doing my electrical engineering research during the day. I play whenever I can, but I haven't been playing a lot, unfortunately. My battle tag is Knight underline Sidonia 1480, I think. And my Twitter is S Parsnejad, which is very hard to spell. It'll be on the link, don't worry. So yeah, it's just S Parsnejad. You know, just follow me on Twitter. I usually follow a lot of Overwatch League and other leagues. So yeah, stay tuned. All right, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was awesome. Thanks, Sina. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sina. It was super interesting. It's a topic I definitely do not think very often about. So uh, it was cool for forcing me doing that. All right, thank guys. you, Michael. For listening, even though you couldn't talk, we appreciate you listening and joining. Thanks, Michael. Okay, thanks, guys. Bye bye. Right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Let's make the future. Featuring the voices of Hossein Kuhani, Michael Curry, Michael Oloranimo, Sarah Palin, and Daniel Valenzuela. Music and editing Christian Peltonen. Visit us online at letsmakethefuture.com.